And so now he's starting to kind of go into a stupor and he's going to lose consciousness. And I'm having to just sort of narrate what's happening. Like, okay, now, you know, as this happens, like this and this is shutting down and this is why, you know, and it was really scary. And so then we had a sort of crew of doctors said, okay, well, there's another, you know, shower, but it's like however long distance away. We got to rush him in the car and get him to this other place before he basically, you know, goes into shock. So we're running and we're rushing and I'm narrating and I'm just trying to keep my cool the whole time because I'm this sort of face on camera saying, okay, well, this is happening now. This time. And then back in my mind, I'm thinking, this guy, you know, could die. Okay, welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you here this week. Uh, let's get straight into things. I'm super excited to have on this week's guest. Her name is Dr. Heather Berlin, and uh, you, you know I actually came across her work for the first time recently. I was uh, reading Nautilus, uh, which is a science magazine, one of my favorites, and I and I noticed that at the top of the uh, sort of most most read list was a piece about the neuroscience of how we experience uh, time while improvising. And this is something that I was super in right off the bat uh, because it's something that I've done uh, some personal work in. My undergraduate uh, thesis was on computational models of jazz improvisation. And uh, there was sort of a lot of neuroscience influence in the way that I thought about that sort of thing. And so I read this article and I was like, you know, every every piece was like, wow, okay. And then I was like, man, who wrote this? And uh, I looked and, and, and it was Heather Berlin. I looked into her uh, backgrounds, and every aspect of it was just like, "Wow, who is this person?" And uh, I can I can list a a small subset of some of her her accolades. Um, she's a cognitive neuroscientist, sort of her background, and uh, right now she is uh, an assistant clinical professor at Mount Sinai. And um, her research sort of looks at the neural basis of impulse control, um, uh, you know, related to that, you know, sort of experience of improvisation and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then her, uh, so she's, she's a really well-established researcher as well as clinician. And then she has an incredible, incredible background as a science communicator. Uh, she's co-hosted uh, Star Talk with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, has done a bunch of stuff uh, for TV, uh, which uh, I won't go into. If you want the, the full um, account of that, you can look it up uh, under the TV hosting section of her website, heatherboleyn.com. Uh, and she has done so much incredible stuff from off-Broadway uh, shows to uh, to stuff on the BBC and on Netflix. It's just insane. So she received her PhD in experimental psychology from Oxford. And uh, so, you know, between sort of my interest in her content material, uh, her career as a science communicator, and sort of our, our shared background in some of the places that we've, we've been, it was just like, wow, this is someone that uh, I really want to talk to. And so this is a huge honor for me to be able to have had this conversation with her and to be able to air it. And uh, I hope you all enjoy. So without further ado, this is Heather Berlin. Hey, Heather, thanks for coming on the uh, podcast today. Thanks for having me. 
All right, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, you have done a ridiculous amount of cool stuff, but um, I want to start off by talking about the uh, play that you co-wrote and starred in uh, in uh, Off-Broadway and the Edinburgh Film uh, Fringe Festival, which I believe you sold out. So the play was called mm -hmm. Off the Top uh, and is on the neuroscience of improvisation. Yeah, so... Um... I actually did two shows with my husband at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, yeah. So the first one was, yes, off the top about the neuroscience of creativity and improvisation. And um, it basically started, well, my husband is a rapper and he raps about science and literature. His name is Baba Brinkman. And um, he often would, you know, talk about like maybe we can kind of combine forces and and do a show together. And um, he said, "Well, it has to be funny." And I said, "You know, I can't be funny on purpose." He's like, "But you can be funny by accident." So it's true. Whenever he would come to my lectures and I would do the Q and A, I would kind of ad lib, or you know, it'd be sort of freestyle as he would put it, and and I'd kind of you know crack jokes and things. So. He said, if we can sort of incorporate some of that into the show, you know, we can make it entertaining. So, but basically it was based on research, which was looking at what happens in rappers' brains and um, also jazz performers and the like when they're doing improvisation and how there's a unique pattern of brain activation. Um, and we kind of wanted to use that as an inroad to you know, do a little education about the brain, but in a fun way in this sort of edutainment so um, it's kind of the show is like part kind of TED talk and, and part rap show concert and play. It's very hard to describe, but um, it's a lot of fun. There's audience participation and we did it, um, I believe it was three years at the Fringe Festival. And yeah, we just had kind of sold out performances every day. And then we took it to New York and we ran it off Broadway Um and now we do kind of one-off shows um, at like conferences or universities. And uh, we actually have one coming up uh, at the 92nd Street Y here in New York. Uh, and yeah, and then we probably that into our sort of second show, which was all about impulse control. It was called Impulse Control. And we just performed it this past year at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as well. So we're thinking about taking it off Broadway also. Yeah. That's so funny. I, that's, I mean, there's so much that I want to unpack there and we'll sort of go through it step by step because I think it's representative of a lot of, you know, the other, the other cool things you've been involved with. But I saw one review of it that, that called you an unlikely married couple, which, which I thought was funny because I don't, I don't find that unlikely at all. <laughs> right? Well. You have two talented people who are in, are in different fields. Uh, I, can, I can totally see how that works, you know? Yeah, I guess it's just unexpected in the sense of, I mean, my ex was like, you know, a corporate lawyer, right. um, you know, very sort of more conservative and buttoned up and traditional. Um, but, you know, actually, you know, I never would have thought, you know, I would be married to a rapper. It just didn't make sense in my kind of worldview. I'm not even, I don't even <laughs> like rap that much, to be honest. I'm more into like rock, but... um. Uh, we met because we uh, were both actually on stage. He actually was my opening act. So I was giving a kind of um, TED style talk at this 
um, underground, uh, kind of like where they would do it at cool venues in New York. So it was on the Lower East Side. It was something called Lucid NYC. Um, and he opened for me and did a, a couple of songs from his um, most recent off-Broadway show at the time, which was actually about um, the psychology of dating um, from an evolutionary sort of evolutionary biology perspective. And he did a couple of songs and I came on and gave a talk. And then we, so we basically both saw each other on stage. Um, but in a way, we're both, you know, science communicators. I'm a scientist, you know, sort of playing around in the entertainment field. And he's an entertainer who's sort of, you know, playing around in the science realm. And then we kind of met in the middle. So I guess if you look at it like that, it's not so unlikely of a, a pair. But my friends at the time were like, oh, you're dating a rapper named Baba? Like, that just didn't seem to fit. <laughs> I'm sure I could yeah. I could ask you questions all day about your rapper husband. But I don't I don't want to do that. Yeah. I want to get into yeah. uh, some other stuff. So maybe before we get into your early, you know, sort of career experiences, could you talk a little bit about what you do now and, and in particular what what does your average day sort of look like? Uh, well, part of why I kind of like what I do is because it's very varied. Um, um, and what I've done most recently in in my career, so I spent the last, uh, say, two decades doing clinical research, right, which basically um, doing neuroimaging and psychopharmacological studies as well as neurocognitive studies of psychiatric patients to try to better understand the underlying neural basis of the disorders and come up with more novel treatments based on the underlying biology. Um, and that's what I've spent much of my career doing, you know, clinical research. But in the last few years, um, I decided that I wanted to do a re-specialization to get um, a license so that I can actually treat individual patients as well as do research. So that required basically going back to school and doing the equivalent of another PhD in clinical psychology, um, as well as an internship and a postdoc. Uh, so that I can see patients for treatment, both um, like sort of traditional talk therapy or, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, as well as neuropsychological testing, which I do now. So my days are kind of a mix of doing some clinical work, being involved in some research, and then also the science communication projects. Um, so it's kind of each day is a different mix, and there's no very typical day, so, which I kind of enjoy. So I want to sort of go back um, more towards the beginning, because certainly, so I'm, I'm definitely interested in the recertification, but certainly you had plenty right. of certifications to begin with. Uh, mm -hmm. And correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, but I, I think you, after your bachelor's, you did a master's in psych and then mm -hmm. a master's in public health, PhD uh, in psychology. It, what, so what, what was the sort of process there? Was, was, was there a sort of... Uh, a, a linear train of, of progression through all that? Or was it just uh, sort of bouncing around to different interests? How did those sort of early choices play out for you? Yeah, there, there is a very clear, um, even though it kind of might be hard to figure out if you look at it, um, but there was a very clear path for me. And so my fundamental interest um, has always been in, in, basically overarching interest is in the neural basis of consciousness. So how the physical brain creates conscious perception. Um, and that was my interest since I was at a very young age when I basically had a fear of death. And I thought, you know, how can my thoughts survive my 
death and basically how are my thoughts connected to my physical brain and it wasn't a question that anybody could answer for me as a child and so that became kind of my burning question and curiosity um, ultimately with the physical brain and how it relates to the mind now when i was coming up through school and like let's go back to college let's say there wasn't even really an established field of cognitive neuroscience where you know you're kind of linking the physical brain to the mind it was either you kind of went into medicine and studied psychiatry or neurology or you became a psychologist and i was really looking at for where do they come together so you know as an undergraduate i was pre-med and a psych major um and I was sort of on my way to go to medical school. I took the MCATs and got into medical school. And then I did an internship at um, Cornell Medical School right for the summer after I graduated. And I was working in the Department of Anesthesiology doing research. And I was, it was interested maybe in going into neurosurgery, um, but that was all physical, right? It was, it was, you know, it was very complex, but it was like kind of being very highly specialized um, I wouldn't say mechanic, but just in the in the physical aspects of the brain. And then I looked into going into, you know, psychology and getting a PhD, but that was just, you know, purely like the mind. And I wanted to see where they came together. And that's when I discovered this field of neuropsychology. Um, and I decided to go work with someone named Marcel Kinsborn, who was kind of one of the leading figures in the field and sort of one of the, the one of the founders of the field. And um, he was Is that the, the same thing. neuropsychology mm-hmm. that would have come from like A.R. Lurie on that sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, it started, I mean, basically before, you know, before we had neuroimaging, yeah. um, the only way to try to figure out what the underlying um, problem in the brain was, was to do these neurocognitive tests. Um, and so that was all we had up until, let's say, the 80s, you know, when PET scanning started to become sort of a thing. Um, but clinically speaking, the only way to figure out the underlying, you know, neural problem was to do these cognitive tests. Um, so anyway, I, I found Marcel Kinsborn was, was at the New School for Social Research, and I said I wanted to go work with him. So I took this sort of leap and said, I'm not going to go to medical school. Instead, I'm going to go do a PhD and and just get to study this one thing that I'm really interested in for five years rather than medical school where maybe I get, you know, six months of psychiatry and six months of neurology. Um, So I went to go work with Marcel at the new school. Um, I did my master's work with him and I was in a PhD program there. But during my the summer of my two years master's, I went and um, studied abroad at Oxford and um you know just fell in love with it and it was a wonderful experience and that was actually the where marcel kinsborg my mentor had been for many many years um he was a professor there so i ended up applying for my phd there leaving the new school with a terminal masters and going into the department of psychology there but really to study this sort of intersection between the brain and the mind um and that sort of led me to Oxford, which, so it seems, so it's still, again, I'm sort of trying to answer this, this, this fundamental question and it's leading me in these different directions, but it's all pretty linear, at least in my mind. Um, and then after, I, when I was working at Oxford, I was doing a lot of clinical research, especially seeing patients like um, in London um, at King's College and the Institute of Psychiatry. And I started noticing flaws in the healthcare system there. And um, thinking about the differences in the American system of healthcare and the NHS, 
and I got interested in healthcare policy. Um, and so it was actually after my PhD that I then went to Harvard and did a Master of Public Health and Healthcare Policy and Management and also Psychiatric Epidemiology because I wanted to understand sort of the larger sort of more global issues um, with the idea of maybe one day working at like something like the WHO or something like that. Um, so that was kind of the arc of my educational um, but but after after my MPH, I ended up just I still was drawn back to my real love and interest of basic research and and neuroscience and neuropsychology, and I ended up going to Mount Sinai to do my um, postdoc, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, um, going back to basic research. So I guess that's kind of a the shortest story of my trajectory. Right. Yeah. Um, and then so okay so and then you do a bunch of stuff sort of centered around basic research. Um, for a mm-hmm. while, what inspired the idea that you wanted to do more clinical work and work one-on-one with patients? And then would you, knowing what you know now, have sort of done things differently with that initial PhD from Oxford? Would you have done something more clinically, um, you know, preparatory in that sense? Um, I mean, that's just no. I mean, I've, I, I've always been interested in having kind of practical real world, you know, applications of my work. Um, but ultimately, you know, I'm interested in answering these deeper questions. Like I want to understand the mechanisms, right? And while clinical work is very practical and you're helping, you know, people in the real world, you're not exploring the, the underlying mechanism. So I really want wanted both. Um, but But I feel like the path I took, I wouldn't have changed it at all. And basically, while I was doing clinical research and trying to sort of answer some of these fundamental questions and working with patient populations, you know, I started to become frustrated because um, I couldn't help these people directly. You know, I, I do research and maybe we would discover something and it would be years later, you know, a paper comes out and then, you know, some experts read it. But was it really impacting those individual patients? And I didn't feel like it, it was. So um, eventually, it basically was when I finally had time to get off the kind of treadmill, you know, because when you're on the academic path, it's about, you know, publishing and and getting advanced in your career. And and it's very hard to kind of step back and do some sort of retraining or re-specialization. But when I got pregnant with my first child, I thought, okay, you know what, I'm going to pull back anyway while I go through this process. Maybe it is a good time to do the re-specialization now. Um, and that kind of became the impetus to do that. Um, and now I'm, I'm really glad that I have both pieces that I can kind of put together and get a fuller picture. I mean, the research informs the clinical work and vice versa. So I feel um, very gratified with where I am now. Uh, so I want to try and fit into uh, that sort of trajectory that you described some of your mm-hmm. uh, outreach, science communication uh, projects that you've done. So, I mean, there are too many for me to name uh, right this second, but, you know, uh, co-hosting Star Talk, um, you know, you've got shows on PBS Discovery, uh, you write a lot, you, you make a lot of appearances. So how did, um, I guess what I'm curious about is when did you first start to think, oh, okay, I'm sort of on this different path than other people with my background, and that I'm going to go out and do these interesting science, science communication things. When did that start to happen for you? You know, I guess, um, well, for me, I've always, even within my kind of chosen field, I've always t- 
taken some sort of novel routes. Like even for, for example, my PhD, I wanted to compare, you know, um, neurological brain lesion patients and patients with stroke and traumatic brain injury to psychiatric patients on neurocognitive measures. And that had not really been done before. And it had to sort of make these bridges between departments of psychiatry and neurology, which really didn't talk to each other. So I always liked the challenge of kind of doing things a little bit, you know, outside the norm or outside the box. Um, and that just keeps me kind of stimulated and, and excited. Um, I like the challenge. And so the part of this transition and into sort of doing some science communication work was I really enjoy the communication. I was actually in college, um, uh, a fine arts minor, and I did painting and theater. And I actually, I was acting in plays from the time I was six all the way through, you know, to the end of college. Um, and so I like that being on stage. I like interacting with the audience and that energy and like sort of a live performance. Um, and I missed that. And what happened was I started going to conferences, you know, academic conferences and presenting my research as you do and giving academic talks. And I found that I really was enjoying it. And I was just doing that as part of my job. But eventually, I think, I didn't so I didn't actively seek it out, but people started inviting me then, you know, to give more sort of public talks and and then like the, the TV, for example, like I think it was a talent scout or someone from Discovery saw a YouTube video or something where I was just giving an academic talk, and they asked me to they flew me to London to audition for this show, and then I got it, and like within a few weeks later, I was flying all over the world, you know, shooting this crazy series, meeting these superhumans and seeing how they could do what they could do, but. Um, so it kind of was a snowball effect after that, um, where then, you know, once you do one thing, you get invited to do others, and um, I, I just really enjoy it. Now, it wasn't, I wasn't getting credit for it at my academic institution. I was kind of doing it despite that and doing it in my free time. Um, I just think that spreading the word about what we're doing in the lab is so important, because if you publish a paper and only, you know, maybe a hundred world experts read it, it doesn't have as much impact as you can get out there and just tell people about it. So I love getting people excited about the science and trying to communicate it in a fun way. Um, and that, yeah, I just continue to do that because it's something I really enjoy. So you didn't really plan on having a career as a TV doctor then? No, <laughs> no, no, I didn't. It, it kind of, it started to happen and I was like, okay, I, I like this. Like, let's do it. There was no clear, uh, yeah, there was no kind of a point where I'm like, I'm going to try to go for this thing now. Um, and that's why often when people, I've gotten sort of interviewed about like your path to science communication. And I'm like, there was no clear path. It kind of, it just, you know, it starts, you're doing what you're doing and then things start happening. You get asked to do this. I mean, my one bit of advice is always like, you know, put yourself out there. Like if, you know, early on, I would just go to anything I was invited to, right? I mean, you know, paid, unpaid, whatever, it didn't matter. I was like, you want to have me? I'm there, you know, and I made time to do it. I made it a priority. I mean, it's harder now because I have kids and, you know, time constraints. But um, at the time, I just, just said, whatever I get invited to, I'm going to, if it's possible, I'm going to go do it. And, and the more kind of you put yourself out there, the more you get, you know, invited to do more things. And that's just kind of how it works. Uh, what do you think, uh, in retrospect, that Talent Scout saw in the YouTube video? Do you think that there was anything that you had, like, sort of 
developed in your your, your skill set up to that point, or anything that they they might have seen uh, that that you feel like you had been particularly good at naturally before you really got into the game. I mean, that's hard. That's a good question because I remember that the video that they cited that they saw was like a really. It was like I think it was like a discussion I was having about you know. Um, the relationship between neuroscience and psychoanalysis, because I got really interested in the field of neuropsychoanalysis and how, like, neuroscience can sort of we can do some research and into classic psychoanalytic ideas. Um, but it was a very kind of academic conversation, and I, I'm not quite sure what, why, what they saw that. But I think part of it might be, again, I think maybe the theater background and sort of my level of comfort um, talking about complex, um, you know, ideas in front of audiences and being able to kind of break them down in a way where it stays true to the science, but it's relatable and kind of making good metaphors. Um, but I do remember when I flew in for the audition, it was actually, they had been doing this audition process for quite some time. It was a number of months and they had started with a large number of people and they had been going through a process where they whittled them down to like the top 10. And I fortunately got flown in at the very last minute, like to that final audition. Um, and so as a consequence, I wasn't that nervous. I think a lot of the other candidates were, because they had been going through this process and it was such a buildup. Um, whereas I just kind of popped in and was like, hey, whatever, free trip to London, you know, if I get it or, or not, doesn't matter. And so I think I was more relaxed in the audition as well and just very kind of matter of fact. And I remember, you know, I also had good mentors. so. You know, I was fortunate enough to meet Bill Nye, the science guy, who became a friend, and he's a popular, you know, communicator here in the States. And, you know, he would give me little bits of advice, or Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, you know, like, talk to the camera like it's your best friend. You know, like, you're just having a conversation with your friend and breaking down some complex thing in a way that they would understand it, you know, someone who's not an expert. And these little tips that I would use. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that all happened very quickly. And I, I remember I had to ask for, you know, six weeks off of work because they were like, you you have to fly around the world and you have to do a whole, you know, shoot. And I was very hesitant. And I remember the producer said, just trust me, you will not regret this, you know. And I trusted him and he was absolutely right. I mean, it was one of the best experiences of my life. It was just, you know, on the job learning um, and it was exhilarating. So it was a very fortunate um, opportunity. Yeah, I guess what's what's really interesting about the the video thing is that whatever they saw in you, they were very correct, right? They were <laughs> they nailed it. Who knows? But um, okay, so that well. trip. Uh, so I can kind of imagine from the outside how that would be completely incredible. Was mm-hmm. there anything that sort of surprised you about what that process was like when you were first thrown into it uh, that was different than how you expected it to go? Um, you know, to be honest, I didn't have a lot of expectations. I really had no idea what I was getting into. Um, I, you know, what I found very different than the kind of pace of life I was used to as an academic is that, you know, within academia, you sort of have a lot of time to kind of prepare and sit back and think about things and kind of contemplate the comments, you know, if you're going to make some kind of public talk. Whereas with this, it was all very, very quick and very, um, you kind of had to go with your gut a lot of the time. You had to be very flexible and willing to just sort of like go with whatever's happening at the moment. Um, so it was a very different pace, you know, the world of TV. It's, you know, you might get your kind of notes like the night before at midnight, you know, for a shoot the next day and you just have to kind of do whatever you can to 
Pair. Yeah, was there a so, specific situation yeah. that sort of like uh, oh, was yeah. your first taste into like, oh, this is happening quickly? Oh, yeah. Um, um, oh, God, there were so many. Uh, okay, one was basically um, we flew to this in the middle of nowhere, like in the fjords in Norway, to watch this ice swimmer um, swim in um, ice water and sort of break these records. Like normally you would Wait, go You just like tweeted about this guy, didn't you? No, this is a different guy, guy now. This I just diff- tweeted about a different guy. Yeah, it was so There's exciting. probably a whole bunch of those guys up, up yeah. in that part of the world jumping into the water bare-ass naked. <laughs> I know. It's insane, really, it is. I mean, and so, like, you know, what we know about human physiology, and normally, you know, after a few minutes, your body goes sort of into hypothermia and shock and in ice water. And um, so this swimmer, he basically swallowed a pill that can – um, we can take his body's core temperature, you know, um, externally when he had this inside of him. So I was yeah. taking these measurements as he was swimming. And we had, a, and we were in the middle, as I said, in the middle of nowhere, like up in the fjords. Um, there, and we had a plan, right? When he got out of the water, he had a whole system of how, what he had to do in terms of recovery. Yeah. Um, and what he had to do is we would go to this little, there was like a shack out there in the middle of um, the mountains with a, a shower and he would progressively have to heat up the water while his body temperature goes back to normal. Anyway, he was able to do whatever mental ability he could do to help control his body temperature and keep it normal while he was swimming. But as soon as he comes out of the water and he sort of stops whatever it is he's doing, he his body temperature drops, right? And it's very important that you have to right away get him to a warm shower where he can bring his body temperature up again. And we get to this, you know, so I'm narrating it. They're filming, you know, the cameras are following. And I'm saying, okay, now this is happening. Now his body temperature is dropping and we're going to go. Now he is incredibly cold. Right. So what happens is we get to the, the, the shower and it's not, the water is not hot enough. It's not hot enough. It's not heating up. And his body temperature is not going back up again. And this is getting really dangerous. Um, and so now he's starting to kind of go into a stupor and he's going to lose consciousness. And I'm having to just sort of narrate what's happening. Like, okay, now, you know, as this happens, like this and this is shutting down and this is why, you know, and it was really scary. And so then we had a sort of crew that said, okay, well, there's another, you know, shower, but it's like however long distance away. We got to rush him in the car and get him to this other place before he basically, you know, goes into shock. So we're running and we're rushing and I'm narrating and I'm just trying to keep my cool the whole time because I'm this sort of face on camera saying, okay, well, this is happening now. This is happening. And then back in my mind, I'm thinking, this guy, you know, could die. This is a really dangerous situation, right? But I had to kind of remain cool, calm, and collected. We eventually get into this other place. The shower finally works. You know, he gets back to normal. Um, but it was a scary, I would say, 20 minutes, uh, half hour. Um and so, you know, it was just kind of like being on the spot, do, you know, keep your cool. I remember after the cameras were off and he finally recovered, you know, that's when kind of my panic was allowed to, you know, set in. Um, we all ended up having like drinks that night. It was great. But, you know, those kinds of like on the spot, just be quick on your feet, um, you know, and that doesn't happen as much, you know, when you're back in the lab, you know, in New York. So it was it was an exciting adventure. Um yeah, and one other thing, just very quick, but I remember, because I, I have a fear of small planes, and in my contract it said everything's great, but just no small planes. And day, my first day of shooting was in with a Red Bull stunt pilot um, in Austria, 
and they wanted me to go into a helicopter and follow the plane as it flies through the mountains and he breaks like all these G's of gravity. And, and so they did, well, you know, no small planes, but you didn't say anything about helicopters. So day one, I'm like in this helicopter having a heart attack. They eventually, eventually was like, I just can't do this. We can't, I like, I ended up not going and following him through the mountains, you know, in a helicopter, but you know, just things like that where you're, you never know what's going to happen each new day. Heather, you have yeah. a lot of degrees, but none of them are in the law. Right. So no. uh, the contracts, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That was not good. I should have had somebody else negotiate that. Yeah. So one thing kind of along this line, so there's uh, there's this great, you have this great uh, section on your website, uh, which is galleries of pictures of, of interesting people that you met. And it's really funny because it tells such a great story because it starts off with basically the major figures of, of consciousness research. So you have like Christoph Koch there. And I think mm-hmm. um, I might have recognized like David Chalmers in one of them. And then it like mm-hmm. it has this very um, perceptible progression up to like John Stewart, uh, you know, George Clooney, Hillary Clinton. Right. Um, I think it's, it's such a, a funny visual representation of your you know, career trajectory along the, along that line. Yeah. I don't know how that happened. Um, I mean, in my mind still, you know, the superstars um, who I've been fortunate enough to be able to spend time with and interact with are the, my academic superstars, you know, like I've gotten to know Dan Dennett and um, Steven Pinker and, you know, just these amazing, um, you know, in the UK, Susan Greenfield. um, Yeah. So, to me, those are the superstars. Um, the other people I get to meet are fun and it's exciting, um, but you know, they hold a different place in my mind. Um, and and what I really want to do is try to bring those worlds together. I mean, that's something I'm excited just about. Just like as I did, you know, trying to bring together psychiatry and neurology and psychology. You know, can we bring the kind of um, entertainers of the world who have a huge platform? into this, you know, into the fold of, of neuroscience and, and psychology and get them excited about it to spread the word. And, you know, I think making those connections um, could be really valuable. I mean, there's an event, this event that I'm going to be doing at the 92nd Street Y, so I'm going to um, be the MC and I'm going to perform, a, a, you know, a small segment of my show with Baba. But basically it's going to be for um, Seth Rogen's organization, Hilarity for Charity. And which is um, interested in raising money to help with uh, research in Alzheimer's disease and to help the people who are caregivers of, of people with Alzheimer's. But um, so it's this crazy event where I'm going to emcee it. And the panel members are like Seth Rogen. And um, I think right now confirmed as like Martha Stewart and like Courtney Cox, you know, and wow. it's just like a crazy combination of, yeah. um, you know, and juxtaposition of different worlds, but we're there, we're going to be there to talk about the brain, you know, and yeah. let's say the brain in comedy and the brain in, um, you know, acting and, and the brain in food. And so it's just fun, I think, to make these novel connections um, between different worlds uh, and, and get people excited about, about neuroscience. So what, what, you know, so um, one thing that uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in is what do, what do these, I assume you introduce yourself as a neuroscientist, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm kind of wondering what people make of that, right? Because like, so for example, mm-hmm. for me, if I'm at like a cocktail party or whatever, even with other mm-hmm. people who are in other parts of academia, 
you know, when you say, when you mention that you study psychology, people sort of do this mm-hmm. thing where they like cover their forehead and say something along the lines of, oh, well, I guess you're reading my mind right now. Um, right. So what do these people sort of make of what you do when you tell them that you study brains? Um, I usually get asked a question about their own like personal area of interest immediately. So, which again, like it's fun when you're meeting, let's say a celebrity, like I remember I met um, Ron Howard and, you know, some neuroscientist and psychologist and he's like, you know, I keep having this recurring dream, like about this and that, you know, can you help me out here? Or um, about some sort of like neurological issue. Um, so I often just get like a question or, you know, the costume is like, oh, a neuroscientist. Like, well, the other thing I I, used, I get sometimes, um, I guess in, in less academic circles, but I think reveals a bit of a stereotype is I say I'm a neuroscientist and it would get misheard as a nurse scientist. For whatever reason, that's happened on many Are you occasions. Really? I'm very serious. I'm very Whoa. serious. Like, a like a number of occasions, at least a dozen, Whoa. where a nurse scientist, and then I'll be talking about, you know, I'll go on and elaborate, and I'm like, oh, but I thought, you know, you're a nurse. Like, no, <laughs> a neuroscientist, like the brain, you know. And then, but yeah, that's happened. And I often think there's some sort of like, you know, unconscious bias or something um, around that, which I find amusing. Uh, but yeah, the general response is people start asking me about question about either themselves or a relative or a friend that has to do with the brain or the mind. Yeah. Yeah. So who, so you mentioned a couple names earlier, but who are the people you really look up to as science communicators and people who are doing really interesting things um, uh, in, you know, whatever medium of, of, of interest it is? Um, I mean, I guess there are different um levels of science communication or you know are we talking about like science communication to sort of more of the academic community or to more of the general public um you know i i think some people just you know off the top of my head that i admire now obviously is um well christoph Koch, who i've worked with um in the past who is the president of the Paul brain institute and he does a lot of outreach um you know publishing books and he's been a mentor and somebody I look up to, um, people I've mentioned already, you know, Dan Dennett, Steven Pinker, um, Dave Chalmers, um, and then, of course, um, Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I've worked with both, and they both, you know, are friends, and, you know, I really have been just so wonderful in terms of mentorship. Um, so, you know, um, you know, and what is what is unfortunate about this list of people is that I'm not mentioning many women, um, but I have to say that my PhD, well, I had two PhD supervisors um, at Oxford. One was Edmund Rawls, who's now retired, and, Sue, and the other was Susan Iverson, who's also now retired. But Susan was the, was the head of the department um, for a while, and then she became the pro-vice chancellor of the university. Um, which was very rare at that time, and an amazing woman mentor. Um, and also Susan Greenfield um, as well, who is a neuroscientist. She used to be the head of the Royal Institute in the UK, um, you know, hosted a series on the BBC on the brain, has written several books, and she's also been a friend and mentor. So, you know, I've had a couple of, of, of great women um, role models as well, but I feel like it's just too few. There needs to be more. 
How did you meet uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Um, I was actually introduced to Neil via um, Bill Nye. And I met Bill Nye over a decade ago at something called Sci Fu Camp, which is this meeting at um, where people at Google, basically, where they invite a, a group of some scientists, people in tech, people in the entertainment world to come together for a weekend sort of retreat at the Google campus um, out in Silicon Valley. And we have, it's like an unconference. So we make up the conference as we go. And uh, I gave a talk on, I think it was at the time, the prefrontal cortex and the functions of the prefrontal cortex. And Bill came to my talk and we just became fast friends. And so I remember he invited me to dinner at Neil's apartment, which was one of the craziest experiences where we had all been drinking some wine. It was with Neil and his family. It was just Neil and his family and Bill and I. And I forget how this happened, but somehow it evolved into blasting the theme, like the beginning opening sequence song of 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know, like, dun, 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 <laughs> and us enacting the uh, apes and like, you know, acting out and like jumping on his couches and just sort of acting out the apes who like discover the, you know. Your theater the, background like, the coming in handy again. Yeah, and we basically acted out this opening sequence, like blasting the music. And in the back of my mind, I was having this sort of meta awareness, like, is this really happening right now? Am I like acting out the opening sequence of 2001 with Bill and Neil? And yes, that happened. And then after that, um, I guess that was my audition. I don't know, but Neil invited me to be on the panel for um, that was the first time I was on Star Talk, and then the rest is history. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So this was before. Uh, this must have been before mm. Bill and I sort of re-blew up, right? Because he was he's, yeah. he was around for a long time. Then he sort of I don't I don't personally understand it myself. I don't I don't, I don't know what, quite what the the trigger was. But then he he sort of had this reemergence into the public consciousness, where now he's this sort of like godfather figure of science communication in in in, in this very interesting, almost ironic way. But he's he's very enjoyed a resurgence in popularity and it sounds like you sort of got to know him maybe right before that happened yeah you know interestingly yes i mean obviously he was in my mind you know we met obviously he was i watched his original show when it was like originally on right. you know and now right. like a lot of people like a lot of millennials and are like watching they have watched the reruns i guess they show them in in you know high school or whatever but i was there for the original I remember fighting with my stepsister, like she wanted to watch MTV and I wanted to watch Bill Nye, you know? Um, But so in my mind, he was, but yeah, it's true. It was before. It sounds like she should have married the rapper, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, But, uh, and then I remember, and then when he, they made a documentary film um, about him and then he asked me to be in it. And I actually am in that where I do some neuro um, cognitive testing on him and do a sort of psychological evaluation of him which was just so surreal. It's actually on, it's like on Netflix. You can find it. It's called Bill Nye Science Guy, a documentary film. And um, yeah, I kind of get to do this neuro evaluation of him, which was just so, so much fun. I got to do a similar thing with um, Chelsea Handler, the comedian, where she, it was a Netflix series called Chelsea Does Drugs. And I basically, she does different drugs and I do tests on her to see how they affect her brain. Which was the, um, so all the really most fun, fun yeah. drug to watch Chelsea Handler do? Um, 
I think, well, she did this, obviously this wasn't my recommendation. She did this all on her own, but she did, um, like, again, against my better recommendation, but she took Ambien and then drank vodka and we, yeah, and she just got pretty, you know, messed up and we, we were playing like, you know, um, table tennis and, you know, I had her do some psychological tests. We did Twister. I mean, she's hysterical. Who won at table as... tennis at that point? She did, which was crazy. Really? I don't even know if they made that mean in the episode or not, but yeah, which was very embarrassing for me because her coordination was all off, but I'm that bad. I'm so that, that yeah, bad. that, I, that I feel, <laughs> now there is something to analyze right there. Exactly. Like, why am I that bad at, at table tennis? But, um, she, yeah, but, but other, and other things, you know, like I beat her at Twister, obviously. And, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, because she's just funny, you know, normally. Right. And then you add in some of those drugs and she got, you know, even more so. And then we had like a debrief the next day, which they filmed also where she just didn't even remember half of it. Um, which was funny. Oh, we were doing Spanish lessons with her. And <laughs> she was just, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that, you know, I, again, I'm really grateful that I've had the opportunity to, you know, kind of do science with these amazing people. Um, yeah, it's, it's been great. So I want to be respectful of your time. You were sort of bumping up against uh, what we what we said we do, and I and I want to sort mm-hmm. of perhaps end by going back to you were mentioning that a lot of the the names of the the science communicators that you uh, look up to, you know, uh, this is you know a smaller number of women. What is your? I know that's something that you're involved in uh, in terms mm-hmm. of you know just that whole movement to to increase representation there what do you what is your sort of Mm -hmm. state of the union on the trends in seeing you know in the future 10 10 10 years from now more women represented as uh science communicators well i mean i I certainly think it's getting better um you know i've been part of i'm on this um for the national academy of sciences there's something called the science and entertainment exchange um where we are involved in trying to get more um, women and and people of color represented in mainstream media like television, film. Um, I'm also doing work um, with a program at the AAAS, um, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which also has a science um, outreach program, and we have similar initiatives. Um, so there, you know, there's a lot going on now to try to change the situation, make more women scientists visible like for example if they're going to cast a woman i mean or a scientist in a tv show like we can kind of push for them for it to make it you know someone from a diverse background or a woman and just to get that image out there um you know one of the things we did at the national academy of sciences with this um science entertainment exchange was in the thor movie like the character that was played by nally portman was going to be i think a nurse or something and then um, you know, we made her help encourage them to make her into a astrophysicist. Right. Um, so, you know, I think those are, that's, that's certainly progress. Now that, that we're in the age of, you know, where, you know, when I was coming up, you know, our media was television basically. And now there's a lot more outlets for people to, you know, make YouTube videos and, um, and the rest. So there's a lot more opportunity for um, it to be more inclusive. Um, that being said, still, when you think of like, if you ask the average person who, you know, do you know, in terms of scientists, you know, 
on average, they're going to name men, right? It's just white men is usually the first people they're going to name. And so there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, you know, like who's the equivalent of Bill Nye and Neil, who's, let's say a woman, right? I don't, I don't know that we've gotten that yet. So, yeah. um, but I'm very optimistic. I think we're definitely moving in the right direction. Um, so I, I feel good about that. And I'm doing what I can to, to help and, you know, just also be visible. Like a lot of what I do is just to show like, hey, you know, you can be a scientist and, and look like this or do, you know, act like this. You don't have to like fulfill the stereotypes. Um, and you just do that by going out there and being yourself and, and doing it. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, right. that, I yeah. mean, that's, uh, it's, it's an incredible story that you have. And, and it's amazing how it, it just sort of, there was this tipping point where it started to happen and then it all happened at once and just snowballed from there. Uh, so that, that's amazing to hear. But it is in, quite incredible to hear how you've been able to not only maintain both research and uh, you know all of the outreach entertainment stuff you do, but then be like, well, you know what else I'm going to do in addition to that is I'm going to I'm going to help people directly and, and do clinical work and that sort of stuff. Um, that's absolutely amazing. So uh, thank you. It's for exhausting sharing. too, I might add. <laughs> it's very and exhausting, and, and it's what? exhausting, I might add. It yeah. is exhausting. <laughs> not to mention uh, children. Speaking of exhaustion. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, that's absolutely amazing and very inspiring. And thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, Heather, thanks for taking the time mm -hmm. to talk to me. I know you don't have, you know, uh, anything better to do like a Seth Rogen panel tonight, but so I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to, uh, to talk to me today. This has been great. Uh, I've really enjoyed um, doing it. And just, I'm going to do my own little plug now, just because why not. But um, the final thing that that's really going to be taking up much of my time this year is I'm writing a book um, on sort of about impulse control in the brain and how to gain more impulse control, when to let it go, um, which will probably be out hopefully knock on wood sometime next year. Yeah. Um, so that's another exciting project just to keep an eye out for that, you know, down the road. Um, what, uh, so is that based off of the the play that you and Baba did? In, in, it's, based, it's based off a lot of my research, um, you know, the prime, most of my research is on impulsive and compulsive um, disorders, uh, yeah. but then we kind of created the play around it with the idea of like, I'm writing the book and I want to kind of work in material and, and see how to make it more accessible. So they kind of coincide with each other, but I mean, it's going to be about impulse control in the brain based on my research and um, yeah, the play was kind of just a testing ground for it. So what is, is there um, sort of like a, a, a big thing or a couple big things that you think people really ought to know about impulse control uh, in everyday life or clinical disorders? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are traditional ways and how to kind of curb your sort of desire for immediate pleasure, you know, or avoidance of pain for some long-term goal. And it, it can be everything from, you know, some people have extremes where they have psychiatric illnesses, like, you know, compulsive or... Um, you know, gambling problems or things like that. But the everyday person, if you just want to like not eat so much chocolate cake, right? There, there are techniques, psychological techniques um, to help you gain more control. And, and I'll certainly go over all of those, but the more novel idea is that sometimes actually counterintuitively, you have to learn how to let go in a controlled way in order to gain more control. So it's about having a release in a sort of healthy way 
because for example if you say you know don't eat the chocolate cake don't eat the chocolate cake like eventually you're just going to break and eat the chocolate cake because there's only so much control you can have yeah um but if we find productive ways like being creative or you know being able to let go in different ways um can actually help you gain more control of the sort of maybe detrimental behaviors that you want to control so it's a bit of a twist um you know and even things like looking at things like psychedelics and the new kind of trend toward um psychedelic medicine right and how that helps people like let go and dissolve their ego and stop the rumination which often is what's leading us to these predilections um you know like drinking or doing drugs uh so things like that that i'm gonna explore right yeah further. and you can yeah. run some tests on chelsea handler oh yeah i have a bunch of uh test subjects that have volunteered <laughs> <laughs> may, may I ask, is the, did the process of, of doing TV help you, uh, if you find that helps in your book writing process? Yes, yes, because I've kind of, in doing television, have learned um, how to distill, you know, the importance of, or sort of the exciting facts out of the science. I mean, a lot of the research is, you know, pretty dry and banal, and, and I think the general public wouldn't be interested in a lot of it. So it's like trying to assess out what are the interesting, you know, aspects of a study and then how to make it relatable and how to create metaphors so that people can, you know, so it really kind of resonates with people. Um, and so I think that's really helpful, that skill set in writing a book for the general public um, about science. Uh, and, and I mean, the beginning of my book, I did a lot of just like talking the way I would, you know, in a, in a TV show explaining something. But then I recorded it and then transcribed it and then, you know, then would work on the text. Right. So a lot of that has helped me because it comes much more naturally to me to speak it than to like write it. So I started with just, you know, speaking it and then turning it into text. And that's been great in the early stages of the process. Yeah. yeah. Did you, I mean, is that a process that you sort of stumbled upon? Uh, did you, were you having trouble putting pen to paper, so to speak? And so you decided to try something different or was that just sort of the obvious thing? Uh, for you to do? That's a good question. I, um, so no, I'm, I, I can actually write, you know, I'm a, I'm a scientist and I've written a lot, but, but the way that I write is very scientific, right? It tends to be mm. more, cause it's, they just train you to like sort of be very objective when you're writing. Right. So it didn't have a lot of subjectivity. And I found that in my writing, it was hard to be non, let's say clinical. And it was actually my literary agent who is amazing. He's great. Um, and he is the one who said, you know, for some, he works with a lot of scientists, authors, and he said, for some, this technique really is, you know, helpful for them. Let's try it. Uh, and we did, and it was great. So it kind of just gets you over the hurdle of, you know, getting the weight. Because he's like, you know, you speak very, like, you know, in a way that's very much more subjective, but you don't write as much in that way. So let's try to get over that hurdle and transition the way you would say something verbally onto the paper and that helps me with that process um so yeah he's great jim levine awesome very cool yeah um all right and when did you say that yeah. that's um slated to come out i mean hope uh, optimistically next year at the end of next year cool. but we will we'll see the latest would be early the following year but i'm going to be optimistic and say the end of next year i love it well if you can take care of as much stuff as you do already and get all that done i have no doubt that piling on one more crazy oh, large sure. product project is yeah. uh with, well within your realm of capability so 
sure. That's, you know, wishful thinking. But I guess that's an empirical <laughs> question. We will see. Yeah. Um, we will see. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today and um, have a good rest of your day, Heather. Great. Thank you so much. So that was my interview with Heather Berlin. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, I find her incredibly fascinating. And I mean, she's just so different than your average scientist in so many ways. And her experiences uh, are, are obviously very remarkable. And I guess one of the things that sort of stands out for me is that uh, it, it, she wasn't like this was a career that she sort of uh, built her expertise and everything around. The, the, the being on television, doing so much science communication, uh, it, it, it really feels like it, it happened out of that one sort of opportunity where someone saw a video of hers online and she got that uh, call to go to London. And for whatever reason, uh, it all just worked. And uh, I think that goes to show uh, sort of a lot about what she was saying uh, about putting herself out there, right? Because the idea is being that, well, it, you can't control when something big is going to happen, but you can keep putting yourself out into the world uh, and knowing that uh, no matter how long it takes, eventually you will get something big to happen. And once that first big opportunity comes, that's when it starts to snowball. That's when you, you meet people, you get more opportunities, you build your, your resume, and uh, it all goes from there. And I think that's uh, very inspiring, especially as someone who's sort of, um, you know, sort of trying to do a lot of similar things myself, perhaps in a more strategic way to some extent, uh, but, you know, it can be discouraging sometimes when you feel like you're putting a lot of work in and uh, you, you, you know, the, the sort of it's not immediately impactful and it's not always, uh, you know, the content that you create doesn't always get as wide of a reach as you would hope. And so, you know, sometimes I feel that way about my own work. And so uh, to, to see that example of, uh, you know, sooner or later, you will have that that big opportunity and you want to be prepared uh, and, and position yourself in a way that's going to optimize for that. And I think there's a lot about, about Heather's story that, that speaks to the power of that. And once that sort of traction hits, how big it can really get. So uh, thank you very much for listening this week. Uh, if you want to keep in touch with me, uh, you can follow me at Twitter, uh, at Cody Commerce. And then uh, there's also my online newsletter, Friendship Friday which you can sign up for on my website, codycommerce.com newsletter. Uh, so thank you for listening, and I will see you back here next week.